0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my extensive catalog of more than 125 awesome AA interviews on any podcast app or or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in AA. So sit back and enjoy this encore episode of my August 2021 interview with Dan D., whose sobriety date is February 1986. When I showed up in AA, Dan already had a couple years sober and was only 20 years old but his qualification for AA was gleaned from a difficult childhood that included divorced parents at age three, after which a rageful alcoholic became Dan's stepfather at age six. From a childhood rife with family dysfunction, fear, and uncertainty, Dan emerged into adolescence where he found alcohol and drugs to soothe the inner turmoil and emotional pain. Left largely unchecked by his disarrayed family, Dan was free to run the streets as a teenager while his budding alcoholism and drug addiction were paving the way to certain ruin. By the time he was an older teen, cocaine had taken over Dan's life, and he started stealing from his employer and robbing houses to support his habit. At 18, he stepped over the line by robbing his parents' home for the umpteenth time down to the carpet. Their ultimatum to Dan was either go into treatment or be booted out onto the street. He spent 90 days in treatment, followed by an intensive AA program, in which he was guided by a thorough sponsor and several old-timers into service-oriented sobriety that continues to this day. But Dan's story became truly extraordinary in 1994, when, with eight years in the AA, he somehow managed to stay sober after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. MS is an incurable and disabling disease that attacks the brain, spinal cord, and the entire central nervous system. After eight years of sobriety, Dan's prospects with MS were those of certain pain, constant struggle, and debilitation of his entire body. But he has endured MS by utilizing the spiritual tools of the program to battle that chronic disease. What amazes me most about Dan is how he has taken his experience fighting MS and put it into practical use in his AA program. Residing in the center of AA, as Dan calls it, his service work with newcomers and as a sponsor is incredibly inspiring to anyone seeking sobriety. I'll let Dan tell you the rest of the story. I'm confident you'll come away with a new perspective of experience, strength, and hope told from Dan's unique and inimitable point of view. So, listen closely for many gifts over the next hour, served up by my friend and AA brother, Dan D. I'm
1: Dan D. I'm an alcoholic.
0: Thanks for identifying. I always do that, uh, Dan, just uh, to make this sound a little bit more like a meeting. Whenever it was I started to put this thing together, you were one of the guys I had in mind that I wanted to interview somewhere along the way. And I'm sorry it's taken us this long to get it together, but... You know, the good interviews just go on and on and on on this podcast. And so I want to really thank you for doing this today. Absolutely. So, the first thing I'd like to know, Dan, is how are you feeling today?
1: Today has been decent. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm feeling okay. Family's good. Kids are good. Yeah. My health is. A bit challenging of late, but yeah. Just taking a day at a time.
0: Yeah, that's kinda of what I was asking about because I, I know that your alcoholism has informed certain parts of your life, but you've been sober a long time now, right? What about thirty five years? Correct. What what's your sobriety day?
1: Two seventeen eighty
0: six. The reason I was asking about how you're feeling is because, you know, we've got this deadly disease called alcoholism that we have arrested, but you and other people in the program, but you're, you're one, of the, one of the closest to me that I know has another major health challenge going on uh, in addition to staying sober and one that I believe needs to be talked about and acknowledged. And that's why I always ask you how you're feeling. How long were you in the program when you first got diagnosed?
1: But June 9th of 94, I was diagnosed, so I guess, eight years.
0: And you were diagnosed with?
1: Multiple sclerosis. It's just over the years, it's gotten more challenging.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, pretty pretty rough now.
0: I used to see you when I first came in. I saw you running around. You were just this young guy that was on fire, it looked like, with the program. So you were sober, you said, eight years before the MS was diagnosed. What was your initial feeling whenever you heard that?
1: Wow. Um That, just how am I going to live with this, it was the same year we got married. Mm-hmm. Diagnosed June of 94.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We got
1: married September of 94. Wow. So I've been sober a while, and I was plenty submerged in recovery. You know, I called my sponsor, and then mm-hmm. I started calling other people, and I just leaned into the program. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was I was pretty fearful, just not knowing what it's going to entail, how bad will it get uh, does God have my back? Has he got me here? You know, I mean, I know he got me here, but does he have me here? Yeah. So I, I was all over the map.
0: I wonder about that too. When it's like when people come into the program, and they get some spirituality. Is it conditional on the way they're feeling at that time? Or do they get the spirituality that gives them the assurance that they'll be able to face future things? What kind of spiritual condition were you in when you first got your diagnosis?
1: You know, decent I'd worked the steps several times mm-hmm. by that time. Yeah. I'd been to you know, I went to Holy Name Retreat like three or four a year. Yeah. But I'd been to boatload of retreats, I'd taken other people through the steps. So
2: uh-huh.
1: I was pretty steeped in spirituality.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I was pretty comfortable, but it's still kind of what? Mm. You know, it's incurable, it's debilitating, it can be crippling. I mean it's pretty heavy diagnosis, so Yeah. Even with a whole lot of faith, I had some fear out.
0: Yeah. How did you process it at that time?
1: Just taking it in 24-hour chunks. To You know, it, it really always got down to just, God's got me this far. You know, surely everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. You know, I, I, I clung on to funny little sayings here and there. But really, I just leaned into the program, yeah. the, the people that care about me, including my now wife.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Whenever that happened, do you recall any gratitude for having gotten sober and worked the steps that you had the tools to then address yet another disease?
1: 100%. I won't say that I got it in real time, Howard. Mm-hmm. I would say looking back mm-hmm. five years after that or when we've had our second child, you know, as as life went on and certainly my condition as I stated in the opening, has gotten worse of late.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm in a
1: wheelchair. I'm, you know, really challenging now.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: yes, absolutely. I've had to, uh, at some point, had some rough nights, Howard, where I would wake up and say, OK, well, it's just me and God, mm-hmm. or it's just me. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's he has to be in the equation. So, yeah, I, looking back was a lot easier. I would not say in real time. I just synced up spiritually, got five bars on my G-drive and said, let's do this. It wasn't like that.
0: Yeah, I get that. Well, so whenever that was going on, were you the only guy that you knew who had not just MS, but another disease that they were living with that other members in the program knew about? So
1: upon my first diagnosis, Mm -hmm. I didn't really know... Of my MS, I didn't really know many people in the program with other illnesses like that. Mm-hmm. But what happens is your phone starts ringing. Hey, this I, I got some guy that has muscular dystrophy or, or had pancreatic cancer. You know, phone starts ringing with other people who have other chronic illnesses, things like that. Mm-hmm. And while I don't have cancer, you know, John, another yeah. guy that you know, I yeah. I didn't have cancer and he didn't have MS. But we got together and talked about just really chunky crap mm-hmm. that normally you didn't have anywhere to go to. So yeah, uh, yeah, things presented themselves through the fellowship that allowed us all to grow together. So
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and I still get called. Hey Dan, I got a guy that's his that his sponsor. His wife was just diagnosed and. Would you be okay if I give her your, you know, uh-huh. lives in California, so somebody you'll never meet. Right. That's a, that's the spouse of it. So, of course, this is where the fellowship is powerful uh-huh. and you share your experience, you know, strength and hope.
0: Yeah, and that's a great sentiment. In fact, one of the most precious times in my sobriety has been when you and I and a handful of other men were going over and having the meetings at John's house when he was on his literally on his deathbed and uh it was such a it was such a a moving opportunity for us to be able to be there together and holding the meeting and what's interesting about it dan is that i interviewed diane early on in this series and uh got to hear about what it was like for her when we were doing that for john and he was a beautiful man
1: as he was getting closer and closer to, to passing right I would meet him more and more. We would go to Starbucks, right? Uh-huh. And he would, you know, he, he would bitch, you know, Diane's being negative. Or, I need positive people around me. You know, she <laughs> thinks I'm, she thinks I'm going to die. I'm like, John, you are. A, <laughs> she has the right to feel basically. Yeah. I, I, when you get called to the, you know, it's time to say something to him in that moment. I needed to comfort him to comfort her. You're going to, you know. She, she has the right, so it gets pretty intense when you talk about this stuff.
0: So what was going on in your life when you were growing up that predicted the need for AA somewhere down the line? What was, what was early what was early life like in Dan D's experience?
1: Of course, so youngest of five, and uh, my real father died when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And I got sober when I was 18. Wow. Uh, So my mom had gotten remarried to another alcoholic. Mm -hmm. My dad died of alcoholism. He did. Mm. Says it on his death certificate. Mm. Doesn't say cirrhosis or heart alcoholism.
0: That's unusual, isn't
1: it? Correct. So he died when I was 10. My mom got remarried to another drunk.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, his addiction was, I mean, his abuse, you know, it was an interesting time growing up in an alcoholic home just the mayhem and so you know just running the streets and i mean i just got in trouble mm-hmm. early yeah at 12 13 14, you know and so by the time i was 18 howard i was already in trouble you know i wasn't even legal mm-hmm. to drink yet i'm already infested with this disease so mm-hmm. I, I don't blame it on the upbringing of the family but uh You know, it is hereditary. My real dad died of it.
0: Do you remember as a child ever saying to yourself, man, that's not going to be me when I get older?
1: My real father, they got divorced when I was like three. Uh And then he died when I was 10. So they weren't living together. Okay, I barely remember my dad.
0: I see. Uh, They
1: said he was a good man. He just drank too much. He couldn't not drink. And so I don't remember much of that. My stepfather was pretty much a raging alcoholic. I mean, when he drank, it, it just got crazy in the house. I mean, shotgun mm-hmm. blast. I mean, it was it was pretty intense around the house. So, yes, mm-hmm. I did not want to. I, I saw the dis-ease part of this disease mm-hmm. living right in my house
3: mm-hmm. with my
1: stepfather mm-hmm. and how he treated my mom and all of us when he was drunk. So, yes. I got a front row seat of what not, but I'm already sober by, at 18. So, uh, well, I don't want to do that. Well, I don't, you know, I, I would say it would be through my stepdad, not from my dad.
0: Yeah. So how old were you when your mom remarried or when your stepdad came into the picture?
1: I think six, 73. I was born in 67. Yeah, six years
3: old.
0: Okay. So... He comes into your life, things start to get progressively worse for you. And so the next 12 years, you're under his roof? Correct. Wow. Must have been a tumultuous time in your family.
1: Yeah, but they let me roam. I mean, I was running the streets. Uh I'd be gone for two or three days without... I mean, you know you're in trouble when you run away from home and they don't look for Uh you. Yeah. (laughs) You just show up through... In other words, there was no oversight. There was no borders, no anything. So that's why I got in trouble so young. I just I went z- zero to a thousand miles an hour. Just you know, hit my addiction at a young age. So mm-hmm. it turned out to be a blessing, but yeah, uh, didn't didn't think so.
0: Where were you chronologically amongst your siblings?
1: Youngest of five.
0: You're the youngest of five. So did you get any? ideas on how to live life or how to survive in this crazy home you were in from your older siblings or was it all self-taught
1: you know always again not in real time but later you pick up on stuff but i'll say this and this will give you a feeling for the addic- addiction a mm-hmm. stepfather's disease living in our house yeah when you turned 18 and some of them 17 uh-huh. you're out didn't matter if you went to college or just moved out on your own. In other words, nobody stuck around. Huh. It was 17 and out, 18 and out. Nobody came back. Uh-huh. You know, some kid graduated from college and didn't get a job immediately, and they moved back. No.
3: Hmm.
2: Wow. <laughs> it was
1: run. Well,
0: how, long, how many years were you alone in that house where everybody else was out?
1: Uh, the youngest, the closest to me, Howard, yeah. was about two years. He went to college. And uh, so I was there really about two Uh years where it was just me, my mom, and my stepdad. And that's 16 to 18, which is when it got the worst for me. Selling drugs, got kicked out of high school.
0: How old were you when you started acting out and uh, started running the streets, figuratively and literally?
1: Yes, I'll give you from 12 to 18. I can do it pretty quick. Started drinking at 12. I just started with alcohol, a little sippy sip, you know, it was, Uh it was adorable. (laughs) Hey, I'll have another one of those. And it did not end up adorable when I was 18. But anyway, started with a little bit of alcohol, and then a lot of alcohol. And then I think what got me, Howard, Uh is, uh, well, alcohol was always there. It was my sweetheart, you know, at age 13, 14. But I added stuff. Our book talks about switching you know we switched mm-hmm. drugs or switched but i didn't switch i added so i, I kept alcohol i mean i started on alcohol and then i kept drinking more and more and more right uh-huh. and then i added marijuana i didn't i didn't switch to marijuana so so my alcohol still went up and my my, mar- my weed went up and then after three months of six months of that i added quaaludes and mandrax and you know speed i mean I kept going on and on, adding stuff while still smoking weed. So that's not a winning formula, you know? Yeah. By the time I was 16, I would say I started doing uh, heavier uh, cocaine in particular. I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. but I started doing cocaine alcoholically. I'll say it that way. That really expedited stuff as well. I mean, foot went down on the speedometer, and it just went a million miles an hour, and... uh that really got me to my finish line quicker.
0: I'll bet. Well, I've heard that from a number of my guests who had the cocaine in their lives as well. Now, Were you just snorting cocaine or were you doing anything with freebasing or, or uh, crack?
1: No crack, uh, smoking it and snorting it.
0: Okay. You were never an IV drug user.
1: I imagine it was next, but
0: correct. So you're 16 years old and you're starting to do... Cocaine, where does a 16-year-old find the money to be able to afford a daily cocaine
1: habit? So I was working for a cleaner's. I started uh, selling to employees, Uh and and then I would drive the truck and drop it off to certain locations. And so I was making basically $42 a day. Um, I I don't remember. This was... 38 years ago, I was thir-
3: mm-hmm.
1: 16, but anyway uh, I would make, you know, 50 bucks a day, well I had a $300 a day coke habit so, plus the weed and the alcohol, all the other stuff so I basically started stealing, started stealing from the cleaners mm-hmm. little by little, just chipping you know, 60, 80, whatever, and then I started stealing from my parents' house oh, boy. little by little, taking whatever I could, and then I started freaking robbing houses, you know, literally kicking into, you know, I mean, I had friends with me that would do it, but mm-hmm. I'm not talking armed robbery. I just mean, uh, so, I mean, what do you do when you have a $300 a day drug habit mm-hmm. and you make 50 bucks, you either quit or you start stealing shit.
0: Were you found out by your folks? Did they ever confront you with that?
1: Well, February 1st of 86, Right. February 2nd sometime around then
0: uh-huh.
1: I came home one day and I took basically everything out of my parents house I just <laughs> backed up a truck and took them to the carpet I mean oh. my dealer had a place by the flea market that he would take everything so I took you know VH when well, they weren't they were Betamax remember Betamax? Yeah. Anyway I would take videos and like in the table. There's nothing he wouldn't take for drugs. So I cleaned my parents out. Wow. So I was I was literally living on the streets for two weeks because I thought they were going to shoot me. And so that's when I started. I would go over to a friend's house mm-hmm. and they'd let me in. All of a sudden I'd unlock a window mm-hmm. and then go back, you know, the next morning and have their maid make me a sandwich while I went upstairs and stole from their parents. I mean, it was pretty intense. Yeah.
0: Sounds like it. I mean... Who are these running buddies you had at the time? Who who were your partners in crime? Would, were you part of a little gang of guys or were, were you working mostly on your own?
1: I mean, I'm not in touch with any of them anymore. I imagine some of them outgrew it and became CEOs and MDs. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> I'm sure that happened. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a couple of them in jail, you know, too. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I took program serious when it said distance yourself from your buddies that, you know, you're you're using buddies. So I took that serious.
0: Now, did your stepfather at this time, did he ever attempt to get sober?
1: It did. He got sober March 9th of 83. Uh So he was sober those last three years. Still pretty raging you know, pretty crazy in the house, but he was sober.
0: Let me ask you how that informed your understanding of AA. To be with somebody who goes from being the way they are drinking to going into AA, but it still seems like they're just the same. How did that make you feel about the AA program?
1: Um, I don't recall really how it made me feel. I just knew that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to end up like that, dry drunk or or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But I did appreciate the fellowship part of it. He always had people around. I mean, he was a good man. He was just a raging alcohol. So he always had people, hey, this is so-and-so, they're going to be here for Thanksgiving. You know, he always had people over and stuff like that. So I did appreciate the fellowship. I went to these Clubs, Howard? I mean I grew up in AA. My sure. God. I went to Alatine, Ala Tot. Mm-hmm. My goodness, he was in the uh I forget the name of the place out in Katy, uh, my stepfather when he when he got sober in eighty three. And uh I went to the club back in the day and so yeah, I kinda grew up in double A.
0: And looking back, can you point to anything that you heard or learned as a tot or a teen that influenced you? To either getting into the program sooner or later?
1: I went to uh-huh. and,
0: the treatment center.
1: Correct. February 16th of 86. I walked home that day. Uh-huh. And I thought they were going to shoot me because right. I'd stolen everything out of their house. Anyway, uh, they said, you got two choices. You can keep walking because we've had enough of your ass. Or you can go to treatment. Uh-huh. It's set up for you to go to treatment. I said, I'll take door number two. So I've been sober ever since. So. Getting in treatment, being on a young people's unit, uh, I would say I was drawn to that, you know. Uh And then getting, uh, you know, I spent 60 days in a 28 day program. So getting out and doing aftercare and starting retreats immediately, uh, the fellowship kicked in really early for me and I took it very serious. So I learned more. I, I just needed a home. I needed a, you know, I needed a home base and I was just drawn to recovery, Howard.
0: So when you were new in AA, uh, there were still a bunch of old timers running around at that time. Some of the legends of Houston AA. Did you find you were hanging with the young people more than the old people? So,
1: yes, we were, you know, got out. It was the young people militia back then. I mean, it was, oh, yeah? you know, you, you got in young and uh, you just stayed at it, you know. So both, I would say. I went to the 10 o'clock meeting at night. We started going down to the men's center mm-hmm. to see Francis Y.'s meeting on Sunday nights. And mm-hmm. he would. He ended up being my sponsor some years later before he died mm-hmm. November of 92. Francis was my sponsor when he died, Francis Y. Mm-hmm. So Frenchie, Le- George P. I don't know if you know George yeah, P. Absolutely. So I always respected the senior guys. then I got introduced to Alder and Bel Air Men's Mm -hmm. and uh, all that. So I wouldn't say I hung around them as much. I would draw from them their wisdom and their experience in recovery. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately got Francis to sponsor me. He was 40 years older than me. But uh, I would say it's a blend of the two.
0: When you were 18 coming into AA, I've actually sponsored guys who got sober even earlier than that, you know, 14, 15 years old. And one of the things they say is they never had the opportunity to do what so many people had done that fueled their alcoholism and drug addiction. Did you ever give that much thought about things that maybe you missed as a later teenager or early 20-something that everybody else seemed to get to do?
1: The one glaring thing, Howard, in this capacity that jumped out, college. I blew off college. I just... Can't believe I've been able to make a good living for myself and my family. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I met a girl, got married. And, you know, in 88, I met my bride now and uh, married in 94, like I told you earlier, but didn't go to college. Mm. I have zero college credit hours. So I would say because of my addiction and then I University of AA, I just joined y'all, you know, and leaned into the program. But I do wish that I went the traditional route in some sort of, you know, the college route. But uh, God's got my back. I mean, I ended up working around it and making a good living for myself. But I would say that's the one blind spot that caught up.
0: Yeah. And I know know some other guys in the program, you and I both do, who skipped the college pathway and just went straight into business or, or doing other things. And a lot of those guys are still sober today. And the wisdom that they bring to the program and to their sponsees and to meetings absolutely belies the fact that they don't have a college education. Right. And yet the flip side of that is those fast talking no alls who come in with the fancy degrees and they can't seem to stay sober. Of course, you know, we've right. got plenty of smart people from, you know, who went, got college degrees, who have terrific recovery that serves them well. Right. At the time that you had the opportunity to go to college, did you ever seriously consider it?
1: No, never considered it. Just blew it off.
0: So what were meetings like for you in the early days? Did you enjoy going to meetings?
1: Absolutely. So it depends on which, you know, I started doing a lot of men's meetings. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: uh, Probably... Five years into my recovery, Mm -hmm. I started doing quite a bit of men's meetings. We would go out to Deer Park, all over the place, in Pasadena. So we would hit meetings all over the place. And then doing the men's meetings was excellent, Howard, because, you know, there was big book studies. There were step studies. You know, you couldn't share. One of the Alder Men's Street if you hadn't worked the steps, you couldn't share, (laughs) if you remember. I remember that, yeah. So they'll call on you and you... You know, you're on step three and it's a four-step meeting. They will cut you off if you hadn't done, you know, well, this is what I'm going (laughs) to do. You know, so, yeah, you learn that these men are serious about their recovery Mm -hmm. because it's a serious addiction. So I would say a blend of the two going men's meetings and also hanging around some of the younger folks. You know, I needed a blend of the two, but it was I did enjoy that. Obviously, getting sponsees Mm -hmm. and learn how to sponsor others. And then, um, yeah, I was diagnosed with MS not long after that. I got married. So Mm -hmm. other experiences just added value to my life and therefore experience so that I can reach still younger and older people. That's important. For
0: the women or even some of the men who are listening to these podcasts, could you explain what the attraction or importance of men's meetings is to you in the course of your recovery versus, let's say, a mixed meeting?
1: Well, of course. So obviously, the world of COVID, I'm not getting out as much now. So this is not a now feeling, but you just get to talk about, I don't know, it seems like everybody's more honest. Mm Mm-hmm less ego, you don't have to worry about this girl, here's that, or, you know, you just lay it out there. Um, So I think it's that, I think it's just the comfort level of a smaller ego, which I'm just another man in the boat, let's do, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if my arms are tired of paddling, I hand it to the next man. So the camaraderie, the fellowship, Mm -hmm. uh, and just the ability to be gutless. And plus, you see one guy just Hey, man, I just want y'all to know that I was just diagnosed with so-and-so. I'm having a really hard time. And, you know, you might get emotional or something. And I'll, I'll get, well, there was no cell phones back when I got sober. But mm-hmm. you'll start get you know, later on in recovery, you start getting texts and go, Hey, man, why don't you call that guy? And so there's just so many opportunities for growth, even through people's pain. Yeah. Even today. That uh, that's why I love the fellowship so much.
0: It's so important to have that connection with others. And men's meetings allow for a type of sharing that might be a little bit more reserved in a mixed meeting. But that's why I, I try and do a mixture of men's meetings and mixed meetings as well. Right. So when you were going through your steps for the first time, you got yourself a sponsor when you first came in? Correct. How long did it take for you to work through the 12 steps?
1: We had to work through four in treatment, uh, so within uh-huh. 60 days, I finished the first three and wrote row, my fourth.
0: Well, was it an AA-based fourth step, or was it one of these treatment center massaged fourth steps with 150 yes, no, check the box question?
1: No, it was double A Good. to the core, right out of the book, my sponsor. I had to back up and do one, two, three, you know, with him, but we worked all 12 steps, right from the book. I mean, especially my first month. So probably nine months it took me to work all 12.
0: Did he get you on top of sponsoring other men when you were done?
1: 100% working with others. And so once you, you know, got to give it away to keep it, right? It's just, that's what you do. You pass the baton. So every sponsor I've had, or every time I've worked the steps, that's the deal. You come in come all the way in, sit all the way down, work the steps, and then reach out to the new, either the new guy or, you know, I've had it all, all kinds of ways. People that have come back in after going back out.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yes, it's sponsoring other men over the years has been very rewarding.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the 3rd and 4th editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. I know a number of the men that you sponsor and I've had some of them on the show and You can tell the quality of a man's sobriety by the quality of his sponsee's sobriety. And I've noticed that about you a lot over the years. You're a high-quality sobriety kind of guy. Appreciate that. Now, between the years of 86 and, let's say, 94, when you got the MS diagnosis, had you experienced any major upheavals or losses? You mentioned getting married, of course. That's a a good thing. That's a gift-type thing. But um, before you got to the MS did you encounter anything that shook your program up or sent you spinning out towards the
1: edge? Um, Really, no. I would say no to that. That was the first real heavy event that happened post-recovery. So
0: about the time that you first got the diagnosis, were you pretty much on the top of your game with regard to AA? How was your spiritual condition going into that period?
1: Right. Yeah, you don't ever want to say you're on top of your game, you know, but... I was pretty synced up with sponsees, hitting my meetings, Uh uh, doing my readings and prayer. So, yeah, I was spiritually fit, let's say, and uh, really connected. I mean, I called my sponsor. Well, I think I went to actually the men's center when I was first diagnosed
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with MS. But, yeah would say that.
0: Mm. How much in advance of going and actually having it diagnosed were the symptoms starting to show up for you?
1: So symptoms are totally different today. Obviously, it's been 27 years, but I had vision problems. Hmm. My hands were numb. Balance was getting bad. My legs were not as bad as they are now, but Mm -hmm. uh, vision was the biggest issue. I saw double part of my MS was a diagnosis called diplopia, which was uh, double vision. So basically for a year, I couldn't drive. My wife took me, it was that year, 94. She took me to work, you know, I mean, it was pretty intense. The workarounds and stuff, but that went away. So 94 to 98, I had symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then from 98 to 08, it was pretty much dormant or asymptomatic. And then 2008, 9, 10, you know, it's gotten worse over the years. And then I got in a wheelchair in twenty. 16, I think. And uh, that's where I'm at.
0: Yeah, I've been going to meetings with you throughout that whole time. So I've had a chance to see as an outsider, the progression of that particular disease and the reprieve you got in the middle of it, though. I mean, you said that there was a period where things were dormant. Did you feel back to normal for a while?
1: Yeah, I would say that's a good way to say it back to normal. I mean, I knew I had it, but yet It wasn't showing up and so I wasn't in denial. I just uh if it works don't fix it or whatever. So I just uh I just went with life. We had kid our first child in two thousand, second child in oh two. I remember asking our neurologist, Hey, can I have kids? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's what are the chances of Mm -hmm. them getting this? Obviously I didn't want that. And um they said, Look, no, we can't it can't be hereditary. My older sister has MS also, my oldest sister. But uh they said we can't tell you anymore that your kids will have it and they won't. You know, so we just said, all right, God, let's have some kids and if uh if they have, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that and they turn out to be perfectly healthy, so God's got my back."
0: He does. The day that you got your diagnosis, what was that like?
1: It was just heavy. It was just the the, the not knowing. How bad is it going to get? Is it going to be painful? Mm-hmm. How am I going to stay sober through this? How am I going to stay married mm-hmm. through this? What will I be able to do? What won't I be mm-hmm. able to So fear of the unknown is what really crept in, even though I was had a relationship with a higher power that was strengthened over time, and I get that, but the fear does creep in of, of the unknown, just not knowing how bad it might get, mm-hmm. and what's that going to look like. Yeah. So I would say that.
0: So you and I have heard over the years that fear and faith can't you know, exist in the same instance. And I'm a believer that you can have a lot of faith. You can believe in God and know that God is taking care of you and has your back, but still you're feeling pain. I, I think it's possible to feel both feelings at the same time.
1: I understand that. Yeah, I, they coexist for me too. It even still, you know, I've, I've lived years on the corner of, you know, Faith Boulevard and Fear Avenue. I mean, right there <laughs> on the corner. And uh, I try and not let it, the fear take me over.
0: Do you, given your specialized knowledge and experience with MS, do you find that men who become your sponsees are attracted to you because of that? Or do you find that men who are facing debilitating diseases other than alcoholism, do you seek them out? What does that look like for you?
1: Well, take the first part of that first. The men that I sponsor, I would say it this way, Howard. The men that I sponsor have appreciated the diversity of me. You know, I'm my wife and I've been together a long time. I'm raising kids. I'm submerged in corporate America. I've been sober a long time. I got native Houstonian. I mean, I've got a lot of really quality relationships, friends uh, in recovery and outside. So uh, I think most of the sponsees have appreciated my experience, you know, and then you add incurable, debilitating illness like MS, mm-hmm. and that's added experience of maneuvering through life, just living with some really chunky stuff and still being happy, still wanting to, you know. I always said one of my sayings was, if I died tomorrow, I'd want to come back as me. And and I still feel that yeah. way. You know, I'm not not in love with every chapter in the book of Dan. But uh, it's a good book. And then the second part of that, that was the sponsor part, the sponsees, uh Absolutely, Howard, like Alex L., I'm talking to him at least two days a week now. He's up mm-hmm. in Michigan. Just to check on him, he has another diagnosis yeah. uh, on top of his MS. And so um, I do talk to people in recovery. I love talking to people in recovery with other debilitating illnesses and how we jointly maneuver through life with Mm -hmm. them, even if they're not all with MS. And that's a whole special grain Mm -hmm. of the fellowship. That's really unmatched. It's, it's unbelievable. Similar to the men's meeting stuff I was talking about back earlier, you just get your uniquely qualified to talk about some really tough Mm -hmm. stuff that you know, you get them, they get you. Mm-hmm. So I think both sides of your question is is valid for me.
0: As I recall, you were involved at some point, maybe you still are, with uh, a non-AA group. Is, is, are you still involved with that, that support
1: group? And what does that mean for you? So I'm not involved in that anymore. I think for about five years, I would say, I went to a chronic illness support group. And um, it was excellent, Howard. There was about eight to nine people in the group. And we all had different stuff. I mean, I was the only alcoholic that also had another, but we all had different stuff. We had MS. We had ale. I mean, we all. But they were chronic illnesses.
3: Mm-hmm. And there
1: was no, you know, it was you had to be really chronically the way the lady uh, vetted them that ran it. Anyway, it was outstanding. So. Um, I could take a lot of my fellowship stuff from AA and let it kind of creep into that group a little bit as far as how we shared with each other. So I took my experience and strength and hope. All, I took that into my support group, but I had to drop it when we started four years ago or so. But uh, it was outstanding.
0: And what a gift to them, especially, I mean, to people who don't have AA To be able to have the additional and added wisdom of somebody who's worked a uh, a spiritual program of recovery to bring that kind of energy into that kind of group, how meaningful that must have been to them. I
1: think so. I certainly hope so, but...
0: Oh, I'm sure. Well, just the kind of guy you are. You're a loving, caring guy. And uh, I remember you mentioning along the way, Dan, the importance of AA and staying sober to your marriage and your relationship uh, with your family, but in particular with your marriage. I've heard you talk over the years about the work that you and your spouse have had that has really been good for you. And can you tell me what... What effects AA has had on your marriage?
1: Um, The benefits of working all the steps, having a relationship with a higher power, um, taking other people through the steps, um, that has benefited me tremendously in my marriage.
0: In what ways?
1: Well, just being authentic, Mm -hmm. um, head of the household type, you know, be a leader, be... Just trying to be a spiritual, you know, um, promoting prayer. So I would say, yeah, I would say that the fellowship and all that kind of led me to, uh, I don't know, kind of strengthened our relationship with my wife. Now, over the years, we've obviously, you know, been together that long. We ended up doing some therapy, Mm -hmm. which in my mind was excellent. It wasn't like, we're in therapy. It was like, yep. We're investing in our relationship, you know, so to dig it up, you know, exhume the body and okay, well, when I said yes, I really meant no 43% of the time. And so uh, we've quite a bit of therapy over the years, uh, which has been beneficial. It wasn't always fun. That was maybe another chapter I'm not in love with, but certainly strengthened our relationship. The foundation, Mm -hmm. uh, it just re retethered us so that we're sustainable for this, for the very reason I'm in now, which is my MS is worse than it's ever been, hmm. and our relationship is strong.
0: That's good. And that's something that you're you're blessed to have that kind of relationship. And how about how about with regard to your kids, AA and children? Obviously you've been sober, they've never seen you not sober. What is AA meant to your relationship with your kids?
1: So obviously they know I don't drink. They know I go to meetings and we've had the discussion with them about by the way, you know it's your father's an alcoholic and you know just that you're susceptible to whatever the words are. Mhm. You could have the gene and just make sure that you're mindful of that and so forth. So arming them with just nowadays they find everything on the internet more yeah, than their that's parents. So <laughs> But, you know, sometimes they, not to discredit my kids, but sometimes they don't hear anything we say, but they definitely see everything we do, right? So I think they just have known. Dad doesn't drink. Dad's in recovery.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I always have these people that come over that I meet. How do you know that guy?
3: Hmm. How
1: do you know so-and-so? I mean, kind of freaks them out probably. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think they see... The fellowship in the program through me, uh, through the quality of my relationships. So I think it's a net plus for them. Um, And then also having me never be off the grid since since they've known me. So I think it's been beneficial, Howard.
0: Yeah. It has in my life, too. And and I told my kids about all three of them, sat them down all together when they were relatively young and explained it in terms, just like you said, that they could understand it in a way to appreciate it. But seeing them become adults and having to still make their own decisions about whether or not to engage in the kind of behavior I did, uh, you know, that's a that's a whole nother thing. All right. So we're talking about decades now. What In addition to the struggles you've had with MS and certainly the gifts that you've had with family and kids and, and career success, what have been some of the other things that have really stuck out in the last couple of decades for you or maybe most recently where you've looked at it and said this really shines the light on my AA program?
1: Oh, Quite a bit of stuff. Um, having kids, you know. So 2010, mm-hmm. I ended up all the medications for my MS and it was just crazy and so I ended up I went to my spot drove to my sponsor's office he, he owned a treatment center at the time and
3: mm-hmm. said
1: hey I'm, I'm just going crazy I don't think I've gone back out I mean I didn't do anything I shouldn't do but I was like I'm on too many meds and it was just all over the map and so uh, we decided that I would go to A treatment facility for relapse prevention. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this, 2010. So I ended up going to California for 41 days and uh, for, I call it a spiritual makeover, but um, I was just in trouble on all the meds and anti spasticity and the pain. I mean, it was just, I wasn't sleeping, and all I did was sleep. And then, you know, that's my MS was starting. I told you earlier, 2008 Uh is when it started coming back. So Eight, nine, ten was just crazy, getting much worse. And um, that's when, you know, I called my own intervention, and it was early enough, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. So that's one event that sticks out by far because people wrote me while I was up there. I worked the steps again. Mm -hmm. Um, My wife went up there for family week, and that was interesting, and uh, stayed in touch with a few of those people over the years. So that's one event. Kids, obviously watching, like my daughter's getting ready in three days to move to Austin to go to University of Texas, which I'm excited. That's great. Congratulations on that. We went to Greece and Turkey together in 2015, I think it was, right before I got in the wheelchair. So, I mean, there's tons of events like that. Uh, but it's just life, just my life unfolding right in front of me, even through the challenges. There have been many blessings along the way. And one of my
0: more recent guests has talked about living life out loud. Uh, seems to me you're that kind of guy, too, huh?
1: Oh, I definitely live out loud, my life out loud. Yes, that's a great statement. Yeah. Um, I, I pride myself mm-hmm. on, on being transparent or just being raw. How are you, Dan? How are you doing today? You know, well, how much time do you have? Or, you know, I mean, just I'm going to be honest with them I'm, no matter what. I'm. Uh, so I do. I like to be that way. I like it that God made me that way. So I agree.
0: Yeah, I get that. Have you ever faced situations where your sobriety has been an intimidation to younger or more new members?
1: I'm sure some of that happened along the way, mm-hmm. Howard, but nothing that was uncomfortable or a workaround. I mean, if God wanted me to work with somebody, he'd put me in position to, you know. So I, I don't think that was really impediment. Yeah. It was the other way around. I, just the other side of that, when I was maybe two years sober or something, I'm driving down to the men's center to go into the sick room. And there I am, 19 or 20 years old, And there's a guy in there, you know, 78 years old, been drinking his whole life. And I'm going to show him something about double. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, I go there in my little tie and my uh, it's like, what am I doing here? But my sponsor told me to get down to the men's center and get in the sick room. And I want you to smell the puke, you know, and know what that's like. So uh, I felt at times odd, like i really qualified <laughs> to do this, but I just went, they looked at me like, what is this kid going to teach me about recovery? Mm-hmm. But teaching them that when your sponsor tells you to do something, you do it. Uh, yeah. That's the lesson.
0: If you had to frame something to a newcomer or somebody who is beyond having hope about AA that would get the message across that you wanted to get across, what would you say?
1: I would share my all-encompassing experience, and it, and you've probably heard some of this. It would be, hey brother, my hope for you is that you come all the way in, you sit all the way down, you lean into us, be willing to work these steps by the warranty, because <laughs> life's gonna, you know. The hundred thousand mile I mean it's
0: you talk about buying the warranty, but i I've, I've often wondered what does that warranty have in it uh, that, that that makes it so important?
1: Well right, I mean, the warranty is God I offer myself to thee to build with me is knowing the material it's it's the third step getting on my knees even when it was hard to get mm-hmm. up up from my knees. I mean it's just marinating in the book and mm-hmm. recovery. And uh, taking all those experiences to to market, I call it, taking it to life. So when you're diagnosed with an incurable, you know, God's got my... uh, I think it's that, just sharing uh, my experience with... And and plus, the fellowship means so much to me also, Howard. Yeah. Um, But I would say that. And just being authentic, being real, like you said earlier, Mm -hmm. living out loud. Um, I think people... Appreciate my mm-hmm. honesty with where I'm at. Um, that's one of the, my current winning formula. I've had many over the years, but uh, I think my my two biggest uh, I had to come up with for, would be uh, hum, humility yeah. and gratitude. Those two. That's what I land on today. Thirty five and some. Months sober, fifty-three years old, with multiple illnesses yeah. that want to kill me, alcoholism and MS. But but yet I'm, can't walk anymore. I mean I got a lot, a lot of issues that need tissues. But gratitude and humility, and just it's the same leaning into the program, trusting y'all, saying yes when you get asked to tell your story. You know, taking kids through the steps, and then you know, doing the step work myself. I've, I've done two ways where I've taken Mm -hmm. people through the steps and then worked it with them. Basically every, both of us did a third, both of us did a fourth, both of did a fifth. So I am who you think I am, you know, that's basically
0: important to me. That's a great way to think about it too. One of the guys who, uh, you Sponsor, as a matter of fact, said something to me recently about the idea of co-sponsorship. In other words, we become so close to our sponsors that that sponsor-sponsee relationship becomes a two-way, you know. And it's been that way from, from me and my sponsor as well. Have you found that with, with men you've sponsored?
1: Absolutely. So, yes, uh-huh. over the years, including now, one of the guys that I sponsor now... I sponsored him for years when he got sober 97, I think it was. And then uh, we drifted for four or five years.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he came back to me about five years ago or maybe longer, like 2011, mm-hmm. 12, something like that. So we, a couple of years ago from now, when, when he had about 20 years, we worked the 12 steps again. We both did it. Like I just told you, we did a two-way where we both worked all 12. I read my fourth step to do my fifth step with my sponsee, yeah. right? And so it was okay. intense. So basically taking all that to market, like I said earlier, it's so beneficial. You're so yeah. honest with each other. And I was looking for a new sponsor. I mean, it was time for me to switch gears. I had a sponsor for 18 years. He was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. But I just wanted something different. So I said, look, let's try out to one of my sponsees. Would you be okay? Would you be comfortable sponsoring me? I know I've got 11 more years in you or whatever, but let's try it for a year. So we tried it for a year. Just if it's uncomfortable, if it doesn't feel right, or if you're not Mm -hmm. able to share, you feel like. And no, it's been fantastic. Mm, So Charlie D. is my sponsee and my sponsor officially. And. It's in this in my case, it's worked out. Yeah,
0: that's a that's a great relationship to have, too. And when he mentioned that, I knew you guys were close. But, uh, you know, to me, that that puts the bow on top right there. That's the icing on the cake. Being able to have that relationship that truly is it kind of transcends the sponsor-sponsee relationship and takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it?
1: I agree completely.
0: Well, I usually like to leave a minute or two at the end for anything that you would just like to say extemporaneously to the world of alcoholics, any number of whom might listen to this.
3: Um,
1: I would say this. Most of what I suffer from today, as far as character defects or just flaw, you know, whatever, most of what I suffer from today is what I cheated on yesterday.
2: Huh. So if I
1: didn't quite tell it all in the fourth step, you know, mm-hmm. or if I didn't d- dig deep enough in six and seven to, you know, I want to rebrand mm-hmm. one of my deep, no, that's just d d That's mm-hmm. just me, baby. You know, no. So I would say, uh, you know, I talked about living out loud earlier. But I would say that, that that makes sense to me.
0: Makes a lot of sense to me. It sure does. And I've I've learned so much from you over the years, and it's been kind of cool being one of your uh, fans along the way. And I have to admit, there, there are some meetings that uh, for a while there that you were kind of a weekly regular in that on the occasions that you do make it there. And I know one of the rooms, unfortunately, the elevator broke to the second floor, and it put a real, a real barrier to you being able to get to that meeting. And it's always good to see you in meetings and hear your your words of wisdom. And it's it's an amazing story that you tell, Dan.
1: Thank you, Howard. I feel super blessed. And hey, without without you, there is no me, brother. So
0: yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful sentiment to end with too. And I want to uh, thank you for being on. The AA Recovery Interviews podcast, and hope that, I mean, my hope is that everybody listens to it. People who need it, people who don't need it, people who are just seeking a uh, hope and experience and spirituality and all those other good things. Uh, you brought them today, brother. You really have, and I, I love you, and you're you're one of my favorite people on the program, and in just in life in general, and. You know that if there's ever anything I can do for you, I will.
1: Absolutely. Love you too, brother.
0: Thanks for doing this, Dan. Absolutely. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks again to Dan D for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service work that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Listen to all the interviews in this podcast series by following Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show to date. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. This podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.